Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 13. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four spine-chilling tales for you about sinister sheds, malevolent machinery, creepy kids, and insidious offers. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors Turn your lights down low and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Dan Weatherer and was co-edited by Dean Drinkle of Domain Publishing. Without further ado, I present to you The Necessary Evils. Out back. The shed stood crooked. Cracked patches of mud marked the paving stone pathway that once ran the length of the lawn, laid in a haphazard zigzag by a gardener trying too hard to add character to a lopsided garden parched beyond saving. The shed door, long shrunk out of shape by a lifetime of turbulent British weather, hung by a single hinge and remained shut, not locked, just shut. There was no window. From the gaps between the slats that comprised the door, gaps that were narrow in places, wider in others, escaped only inkblot-like threads of darkness and nothing more. 
Whenever we'd wondered what was behind that shut-to, not locked, wooden door, which he did so lots of times, Nathan had asked his grandmother what she kept in the shed. Somehow she'd always answer without answering, if that made any kind of sense. She'd mumble something or other about noisy little boys and their inevitable comeuppance, usually just enough to start the cogs of his imagination turning, his attention shifting onto a new fancy, as little boys' imaginations tended to do, and then, without him noticing, his curiosity about the shed would vanish. Then, before he could pluck up the courage to interrupt his grandmother from her chores for a second or third time, it would be time to go home. Nathan's grandmother was an expert on avoiding the subject of what was in the shed at the bottom of the garden. Nathan was just a little boy, struggling to understand the world and its perpetual fascination with misdirecting the young. He had no hope of ever getting his grandmother to admit to the truth. But children are quick to learn from their environment, and realizing the futility of asking his grandmother the same question again, Nathan had taken his first tentative steps into mastering the art of deception. Knowing she kept a tidy house, he told her he'd seen a mouse scuttle across the kitchen flags and disappear somewhere inside the larder. Upon hearing this, his grandmother had spent the last ten minutes on her hands and knees, torch in one hand, dustpan in the other, cursing her ill fortune. Ten minutes was more than enough time for Nathan to sneak out of the house and creep down to the shed at the bottom of the garden. Now he stood nose to door, one eye squeezed shut, the other peering through a gap in the wood into the murk beyond, his courage rising, falling, and rising again, his palms sweaty, his heart thudding against the inside of his ribcage. Squeezing his fingertips between the door and its frame, he gently pried it open. It shuddered free, showering him in dust. He glanced nervously back toward his grandmother's house, half expecting to see her marching towards him, skirt hitched, cheeks puffing, scolding between hurried breaths. But the garden was empty. She was still caught amid his deceit. His attention shifted back to the shed and its contents, of which there were none, except for a set of worn stone steps that led down into anonymous gloom. Nathan stood at the top of the steps and peered into the darkness beneath him. The steps descended deeper than he was able to see. He called out, not expecting to be answered, hearing only his greeting reply and echo. With his curiosity mounting, he placed his left foot onto the first of the stone steps. Aside from a creeping cold that permeated the sole of his shoe, all remained right with the world, Nothing had stirred in the gloom below. The monsters that in his mind had waited for this moment to pounce, either slept, undisturbed, or lurked imagined. Deciding that he'd likely not get a chance to explore the steps and their destination any time soon again, as his grandmother would surely keep him close by, once she discovered he'd been inside her shed, he took a deep breath and set off down the steps. After the first eighty or so steps Nathan had counted, the low-arched passageway that had been neatly carved through the soil and rock fell away on all sides into perfect darkness, taking with it the damp earthen smell that had polluted his nostrils. At first he stood still and unsteady, sure that to either side of him lay a drop so deep he'd likely die before hitting the bottom. Continuing down, his footfalls echoed with a decreasing resonance, causing his trailing footsteps to layer over one another, building into a frantic crescendo that battered his eardrums and rattled his teeth before ceasing abruptly, replaced by absolute silence. The unknown enormity of the cavern threatened his balance once more, and he was about to give up on his expedition when he caught sight of a glimmer of light far below. He continued his descent. For hours he walked, maybe days, 
It was hard for him to gauge the passage of time in silence in the abyss. Still, the light below him, distorted and orange, like it was viewed through a grease-smudged lens, drew nearer, and it was impossible to tell whether it was Nathan who approached the light or if the light approached Nathan. Down. Further. Deeper. The distant flicker of light became a vertical streak that burned with increasing intensity and grew longer, grew taller with every step taken. Deeper still, until he stood at the bottom of the stone staircase. Before him, a wall of sheetrock, split cleanly in two by a searing streak of orange light, and he had to crane his neck forward as far as he was able, and still he could not see an end to the light that burned without heat a mere arm's length from him. To his right, something shifted in the murk, formless, yet quickly settling on a shape it deemed least offensive. The shadows shifted and parted to reveal the frayed outline of a man, slender and tall, taller than any man Nathan had seen. He was older, too. His features were gaunt and crisscrossed, with deep lines, each an abyss unto itself. His eyes were narrow, corrupted by eternal night. You should not be here, little one, said the gatekeeper, his lips forming a practiced grimace, his teeth needle-sharp. Far from the light you have strayed. With his initial surprise at the presence of the man subsiding, Nathan spoke. Don't tell Nana, will you? I just wanted to see what she kept in her shed. The gatekeeper's grimace stretched into a grin as a trickle of pleasure stirred deep within the bowels of the form's impersonation of a gut. This one was young, his soul untainted, a rare delicacy, but he was untouchable, for the ways of free will had yet to assert their influence. You want to be careful how you handle the truth, little one. Truth is a gift, delicate, easily mislaid. Beyond it only lies in sin. Well, lies are bad, chirped Nathan, squinting at the light erupting from the rock face. That's what Mum says. Your mother is wise to the ways of the world, said the gatekeeper, nonchalantly seeking an internal record as to the current state of her soul. Alas, he sighed, she is destined for that other place. His eyes narrowed further, the wrinkled features of his face swallowing them momentarily. You should heed her words, lest I devour your soul. What's your favorite color? asked the boy. The rubescent spray of arterial blood. Mine's blue. What's your favorite food? Charred flesh. A muscle, raw and bleeding, peeled from the bone. I like pizza best. What's your favorite TV show? I have no interest in the puerile distractions of the living. I savor their anguish, a feast, and their pain. Mine's Ben 10. It has aliens in it. Another blasphemy. Perhaps he shall be damned in time. You ask a lot of questions, growled the gatekeeper, his torment rising. Nathan pointed toward the light. Why has that wall got a light in it? The gatekeeper was accustomed to frequent visitors, but not of the sort that wished to stay a while and chat. Amused by his guest's apparent fearlessness and bored beyond the realms of mortal tedium, the gatekeeper suppressed his agony, brought his skeletal hands together in mock prayer, and spoke. "'Tis not a wall as such. Earth, comprised of rock and dirt, merely shapes the gateway to one of the two realms.' Nathan blinked at the man and returned his arm to his side. Think of it as a door, hissed the gatekeeper. Nathan craned his neck again. It's a very big door. The gatekeeper nodded. A moment of silence followed as Nathan mulled over whether to ask his next question. What's in there? The gatekeeper smiled. 
Heat and darkness. Despair and pain. There's not a place for the likes of you. Who is it for, then? The worthless and the damned. Nathan put his hands into his pockets and looked at the floor. Is my daddy in there? The gatekeeper knew that he was not, and watched as the boy shuffled his weight from one foot to the other. Because my mommy said he was worthless. Humor was oft lost on lesser demons, but the gatekeeper was sufficiently versed in the ways of the living, and he allowed himself an attempt at a laugh. The sound had escaped the lips of the old man, guttural and impossibly loud, caused Nathan to jump. The gatekeeper noted the boy's discomfort. Forgive me, my child. Your father is not here. Nor is he in that other place, although that is where he will surely be once the time comes. The gatekeeper glanced past the boy, noting the shuffling presence that was lamenting itself down the final few stone steps. He ushered the boy aside, content that he would see nothing of the horror about to unfold. His light shall be barrier enough. First came the murderer, his clothes slick with the blood, his body cut, his wounds deep, matching those of his victim who now existed, free of pain in a place of incomprehensible beauty. After him, the adulteress, her genitals exposed as a heaving mass of pulsing blisters, her lying tongue lolling between her sagging breasts. Behind her lumbered the gluttonous, an individual whose greed caused excessive misery to others, his body impossibly swollen, so that his hands and feet were all but stumps attached to a heaving, sweating mass of blubber, his eyes bulging from a face swollen by fat. They ignored the boy and his light, either oblivious to his presence or too consumed by confusion and fear to pay him heed. The gatekeeper had heard their pitiful cries long before his interaction with the boy had begun. Only now had they completed the journey down the steps of woe to arrive at the gateway to hell. In his experience, some took longer to make the descent than others. The will to flee the inescapable pull of the damned varied person to person. The plays were in vain, heard already, a hundred million thousand times before, often from souls far more deserving of forgiveness, forgiveness not found. Such an ugly concept. The gatekeeper shuddered at the idea of the mere thought of the word caused searing pain to permeate his essence, and he screamed in agony. Nathan jumped a second time. He could see that the old man was distracted by something but was unsure as to what. Aside from a sudden chill that made him long for his blue winter jacket, everything was as it had been. The old man's mouth began to move, and his face twisted as to become almost unrecognizable. His features lost amid a mask of flesh that seemed to tear, and the gatekeeper, suddenly aware of his guest, looked at the boy, noting his rising fear. The rage of the twelve hundred fallen souls subsided momentarily, and he quashed his anger, securing the form of the old man once more. The boy looked to be relieved, cold, but relieved. I shall hurry the damnation. The gatekeeper eyed the three pitiful souls kneeling and wailing before him. Without a word, without motion, he commanded the gates. The light emanating from the wall of rock intensified, as the gates swung open, deliberate and slow, their size beyond massive, teasing an ever-expanding glimpse as to the torment below. Nathan watched mouth agape as the wall of rock parted soundlessly, the light too bright for him to look upon, and he turned away, not afraid, but somehow knowing this was not a sight for him. The anguished cacophony of the accursed burst forth from beyond the gates, swallowing the pathetic cries of the three sinners kneeling before the gatekeeper, consuming their twisted forms, 
accepting them among the chorus of the condemned. With a death motion, the gate slammed together, silencing the infernal dim. Darkness settled upon the cavern once more. Only the smudged streak of light that marked the seam between the gates remained. Nathan, shielded by his innocence, saw and heard nothing beyond the gates. He stood confused, waiting patiently for the attention of the gatekeeper to return to him once more. "'What's your name?' asked the boy. "'To pronounce it correctly, I'd need to open your throat and pull your tongue through your bloody slit. "'You may address me as Moloch.' "'That's a funny name,' laughed the boy. "'Mine's Nathan. Nathan, I know who you are,' interrupted Moloch, extending a bony finger. "'I also know you should not be here, yet you remain.' "'What are you doing down here all alone, Moloch?' "'Down here is where I belong. "'I serve the fallen lord. "'These gates I tend, "'allowing in only those judged as sinners. "'My vigil is timeless. "'Those behind the gates "'must remain behind the gates. "'That is my sworn duty. "'Don't you get lonely?' "'The wrinkles in Moloch's assumed brow deepened, seemingly swallowing traces of what little light escaped the seam of the gates. Loneliness was a mortal condition. He was created to serve a purpose. Beyond that, there was nothing of interest or concern to him. Such was the order of hell. No, I do not. The sound of distant footfalls and trembling voices caused Moloch to look up. Another sinner approached. You should return to your home, Nathan. I have much to attend to. Nathan turned to follow Moloch's gaze and saw only the stone steps, empty and ending in darkness. I probably should begin, Moloch. Nanny will be worried. It's been ages. There are lots of steps. Do not worry. You will emerge from this place the moment you entered. Time holds no sway here. Nathan frowned. That is to say, continued Moloch, that your grandmother will not have noticed your absence. Thank you, Moloch, said Nathan with a smile. This has been fun. I'm sure it has, grinned Moloch, but do not come back. As he watched the small boy gingerly pick his way up the stone steps, passing through the gathering crowd of thieves, rapists, and heretics who stumbled over one another in a bid to plead for mercy first. Moloch wondered as to the nature of evil. It was evident that the boy, who had turned to wave his way a final time, held no capacity for evil, and that Moloch would likely never meet him again. He hoped he would not meet him again, as much as any demon had the capacity to hope, for there was still time for the boy to lose his way. The curse of free will claimed many an innocent soul as they embarked on the torrid journey the mortals referred to as life. As he watched the shadows consume the outline of the boy, it was a strange and uncomfortable feeling that manifested in his makeshift gut, one that he was only too glad to be rid of once he shed his form. From the shadows... Moloch glared at Nathan and the approaching girl. She, not much older than he, and like he, a stranger to this place both in life and death. I told you not to return, said Moloch, stepping out of the gloom and staring at the girl. See, I told you there's an old man living down here, gloated Nathan. She didn't believe me. I did believe you, countered the girl. I just wanted to see for myself. Malik grinned. Girl, if sight is needed as proof so that one may believe, you may well find yourself back here sooner than you like. Oh, I don't think so, shrugged the girl. It smells funny down here, like rotten eggs. That's my big sister, Bethany, said Nathan. She wanted to meet you. Do you want to see my Veruca? said Bethany, kicking off his shoe and bending to remove her sock. 
Oh, I enjoy the sight of festering flesh. As much as any, hissed Mullock, his temper rising, but one pus-filled sore looks much the same as any other, so... Bethany lifted her foot and pointed it towards the gatekeeper. The doctor said he'd never seen one as big as this. It's quite the sight, said Moloch, averting his gaze from the girl's infected foot, instead focusing on the stone steps, hoping, nay, praying, for the welcome distraction of new intake of sinners. She's got an even bigger one on her other foot, said Nathan. Go on, show him. As the girl began to slide her foot from the remaining shoe, the final fragile strands of Mullock's restraint, a display of self-control that at any other time would have earned him a place in that other kingdom, snapped. The children had to leave and never return. With a growl born of timeless rage, Moloch shed the threads of his assumed disguise and allowed himself to metamorphosize into his true demonic form. The children stood rooted, mouth agape, bodies trembling, a silent scream, escaping their lips as the flesh of the old man split and tore, his limbs twisted and snapped, and all hint of the gatekeeper's human form was swallowed by a revolting mass of pulsing meat and blood. From its rear burst two spindly appendages, sending a shower of blood mist into the air, covering the faces of the children. From these appendages, unfurled sheets of wet flesh, which flapped in unison and expanded in size until their span was reached. The grotesque mask, now a winged, writhing hulk of muscle, twisted and contorted, its center tearing in two, revealing a snapping mouth lined with rows of pointed broken teeth. Tongue, long and neatly split, danced this way and that, edging closer to the children who were still gripped by their catatonic state. Above the mouth, a single eye opened, bulbous, vast, and emanating hate. Their shock shattered by terror. The children turned and ran. They did not look back. Tell your grandmother to buy a log for that door, roared Moloch relishing the freedom of his true form. The next time I see you, I'll peel the flesh from your face. Out back, the shed stood crooked and secured with several gleaming padlocks. It remained empty inside, save for the stone steps that led down deep into the earth crust. At the foot of the steps remained the gatekeeper, whom, in those lingering silences, when he might relax his guard, did wonder as to the joys of a setting sun, a clear night sky, a soft kiss of falling snow, and to the well-being of the two children. The feeling in his makeshift gut had lingered on, gaining in ferocity since he'd been forced to frighten them away. It was a feeling the mortals had termed regret. He didn't much care for it. On the last step before the gates of hell sat a solitary crumpled white sock and a pair of scuffed black school shoes. Moloch could have swept them into the abyss, but in those same long, lingering silences, they reminded him that there was good in the world. It was just that he would never likely see it again firsthand. Beside which, the sight of the shoes provided many wretched souls with a welcome, albeit puzzling, distraction, and in his few lighter moments, he'd shared the story of their origin with a select few while they waited to begin their sentence of eternal agony. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed The Necessary Evils as written by Dan Weatherer and co-edited by Dean Drinkle of Domain Publishing. If you enjoyed that last tale, I'd encourage you to check out more of Dan's work at his website, fatherdarkness.com, where you'll find more information about his published works and where you can get your own copies of them and how to get in touch with him. Up next, we've got another second tale of terror, a Chilling Tales for Dark Knights exclusive original story courtesy of author Seth Paul. Without further ado, I present to you the final testament of Lawrence Archer, The throat is deep and the mouth is wide. These are the first words spoken to me by Dr. Lawrence Archer, whom I found in a rather poor state when I came to visit him at his home in Massachusetts. I'd expected to arrive and be greeted in a jovial manner, as I'd been accustomed to on my many frequent visits to his home. I often brought my wife with me, but He's a lifelong bachelor, had only his dog Rafferty as company. This didn't mean our visits were by any means dull, as he was capable of holding our attention long into the night. But to begin here is to understate the importance of his place in my life, and to know less of the story than one should. I'd been a medical student when I had met Lawrence, long before the title of doctor had been placed upon him, and we both studied greatly at Harvard before we parted ways, I on a career in the psychoses and he into biological medicine. He was more successful on I, uh, as I found myself unable to cope with the pressures of my chosen field and retreated instead into the world of business. Still, we had no opportunity to see each other, but we kept correspondence, and thus we kept each other apprised of our ways in life. It was many years before he announced to me that he was leaving his medical practice out east and returning to his home city to work as a private physician for an elderly gentleman of great wealth. I worked this out to be Pembroke Armbruster, who lived in a gated manor not far from where I lived, and I soon learned that Lawrence would take up his own residence within walking distance of our home. It was a great joy when he first invited us to his new home, a sprawling, gothic edifice of great splendor, and though we had both aged noticeably in the time I had last seen him in person, he was still the same jovial, smiling fellow I remembered him to be, full of life, ideas. He absolutely adored my wife, and she him. At first, I'll admit my concern that she eyed him in a way that was not unlike the way she once looked at me during our courtship, but Lawrence would reassure me privately in later evenings that science was his first and only love, and that he remained uninterested in a relationship with another. Rafferty, a mutt who Lawrence believed was a Cocker Spaniel border terrier mix of some sort, was all he said he needed, mainly to wake him in the event of a burglary. I informed him burglaries were not common here, but regardless, the dog was a lovable scoundrel, even if not the most well-mannered creature. He'd often approach the table and steal a piece of bread or meat if he wasn't watched carefully, but what brings me to the day I found him began with a conversation he and I had during a dinner. My wife had, unfortunately, been taken ill with dropsy, 
and was on bed rest with medicine from our personal physician and didn't attend this particular visit. Having a glass of wine with some splendidly cooked lamb and asparagus, Lawrence swirled his drink and asked me, Herbert, in order to speak with you on an important matter, I must go against my own code as a physician and break the confidentiality between doctor and patient. Would you go to your grave, not telling a soul about what I'm to tell you? Now, for those of you of whom I relate this story, please understand at the time I agreed to his request. However, based on the events I'm about to tell you, I know that I only divulged them to you due to the highly unusual and frightening items that are to come, and that only God may forgive me for not keeping my word. He placed down his drink, folded his hands, and breathed deeply. I very nearly lost my patient today, Herbert. I, his heart arrested, and it took all of my skill as a doctor to bring him back. Well, then, my friend, what's the problem? You do yourself a disservice. Truly, he is graced that you're there to watch him. He pounded on the table. But it was the time, Herbert, the time. He'd been gone for nearly twenty minutes. Twenty damn minutes. No breath, no pulse. And yet, he sits in his bed and tells me he meant for it to happen. I blinked, stunned. His employer meant to kill himself. He's suicidal? But what are you doing here? Should you not be? I have asked the police to remain with him the remainder of the night. They're under the belief that he is to be kept under watch for a potential second arrest and to contact me if it should happen. I didn't tell them what he planned, partly for his own ego, and partly because of what he told me. He stood and moved to the window. You recall, Herbert, in our studies together, the phenomenon of those who say they see a white light and then return to their bodies. I did indeed and told him so. As I said, I left the field of medicine, but this notion of a vision of the world to come after was regarded as a curiosity amongst our professors and colleagues. Some truly believed it was that of angels and loved ones leading them on to the path of heaven. It was a notion I remained agnostic about, but I did not doubt the sincerity of those who saw. And in this I knew Lawrence and I differed. He believed, as many who taught us did, that what these visions were was nothing more than the fancy of a dying brain, a last hurrah before descending into that endless night of death. Lawrence wasn't a man who thought life continued in such a way, and it was rare that I did not see him vocal on the subject, though, as friends, he often gave me some leeway. Pembroke told me that in those twenty minutes he lay on the floor, he had seen a vision, but it was not of white light nor of angelic beings. No... He saw something of a much darker tone. He regaled me with Pembroke's prophecy of a dark hole with walls like the inside of a vein pulsing and red, of crackling and catcalls down deep inside of a void, of beckoning shadows. It was also horrifying to hear of a dying man seeing a fate beyond his worst imaginings. When Pembroke had finished, he asked for someone to whom he could confess, and a place where he could donate much of his wealth. He followed by saying, They made me promise not to tell, but you know me, I can't help myself. At that, Lawrence chuckled, <laughs> You know my position, old friend, as many do. You know any priest in town would hang up the phone if I called. I simply gave him a gentle sedative so that he could rest before I contacted the authorities. But you see how I'm conflicted, Herbert. All these cases of bright lights, happiness, warmth. But in all this time, not one that is documented of a place far, far worse. A different vision could mean, in fact, 
that the mind is traveling outside of the body to another place. If he has stood at the gates of hell, then surely there might truly be something to investigate in all this. I've never seen him so animated, so willing to cast aside his doubts. But then, of course, there was no need to believe he'd changed his views, as he soon told me. If he indeed speaks true, then it can be replicated. There is a way to see this and bring back knowledge from the point of death. I don't yet know the method, but rest assured, I'll determine once and for all this place, be it madness to heavens or hells, or another world, is something that science can see and even better explain. Does that not intrigue you as well, to pull the reality from the words of fantasy? I must admit, it did, but not to the degree he was now infatuated. I knew we all must face death at some point, but I hoped my visit was far distant, following a long and productive life. I had no desire to hasten it. We talked about this subject for a short time after, but Lawrence seemed to notice my hesitation in wanting to discuss it further. We ended the evening talking of more pleasant things. It would not be long before he once again mentioned this new obsession in our letters, and at one point I did have to remind him that not long ago he believed such a thing was nonsense. I do not believe it, he responded in his letters, but I have to see it. If there's a way to do so, I will. Time went by and I didn't hear from my friend. The summer months fell into autumn and a definitive chill filled the air along with the dampness that again made my wife fall ill. I stayed at her side, but there was little that could be done by my hand. The doctor stated that perhaps uh, I would be best occupied in other pursuits, as she had her rest. Not quite knowing what to do with myself, it struck me that perhaps I should visit my friend and do so unexpectedly. I had still not heard from him and thought perhaps he could use some company. He was suffering from some melancholy, a possibility, for he might have had a setback in his research. My face at his door might be just what he needed. I arrived at his doorstep and knocked, uh, but received no answer. However, his door was unlocked, and that was unusual. I heard Rafferty barking inside, as well as scampering on the hard floor. Spurred on by the dog's franticness, I pushed my way in to find him running towards me, leading me to his master who had fallen to the floor, the door to his study open not far distant. I rolled him onto his back to find him pale, his breathing weak, but his eyes wide, he was cold with sweat. Whatever shock he had sustained, I need to act quickly to recover his wits. And that was when he spoke those words to me. He didn't in fact recover looking warmer and more himself within an hour, once I had provided blankets and a pillow to which to prop him up. But he spoke little more than asking for drink and thanking me for the aid I provided. After some more time had passed, he became slightly more communicative and bade me help him to his bed. I did so, but on our way I finally was able to take a look into his study due in part to my desire to help him, I'd not glanced in there at all during my time there. My search for blankets and pillows led me to the sitting room, which was on the opposite end of the hall. But there I saw some sort of contraption, shaped rather like an electric chair. I would have said exactly like one, but for some sort of monitoring device attached to it by wires. Once I had gotten him settled and his collar returned to full, he motioned for me to sit near him. Herbert, I've done it. There was triumph in his voice, but at the same time there was something else. Fear? Disappointment? You've seen the place? Pembroke described? You've been there? Yes. You saw my device, I take it. The chair in my study. Tell me. What time? What day is it? A little confused, I told him the time. 
At this, he grew slightly pale once more. I asked him his reasoning, but he shook his head. In a moment. But first, what are you doing here, my friend? I explained to him his lack of letters and how I felt a visit would be the best thing for his spirits and mine. He smiled and nodded. Indeed. In recent times, I've not been as good a friend as I would like. But you must understand, once I'd stumbled upon the very nature of my machine, I could not but help giving it my all. I do apologize and hope in the future to send you word. But I'm glad you happened along when you did. Even now, my senses did not feel as if they've fully recovered. Even so, he regaled me with his tail. My machine is a finely tuned instrument, capable of sending the user a brief electrical current designed to immobilize the senses, slow the body, and drive it to just the edge of death itself. It took some time to get it right, but on my last effort, I saw. First, it was that realm of white light, of beckoning hands, of voices from my past. They urged me, prudence, to either come with them or return to Earth. At that I shouted, wishing to see the realm of darkness, to know full well that if they were truly heaven, then they should have the power to show me hell as well. Herbert paused in his recollection. That they did. He paused once more to take a small sip from his drink. They tried to tell me, but I could not stop myself. I was at the mouth of the darkness. I saw the red-lined walls, just like the throat of a large animal, pulsing, diseased, swimming with shapes just below the surface of the taut skin. The yawning darkness beyond, with its wailing and cacophony, stood ahead, bending down into an infinite abyss. And then, beyond the calls, something came crawling up from the darkness and took hold of me. He shook. I saw some things on the other side, Herbert. Things no one should see, even those who live lives of utter cruelty and depravity. They did things to me, or whatever part of me traveled there. Tortured, imprisoned, experimented on at one point. They put something inside of me, laughing all the way. He swallowed and pulled the covers further over himself. I asked you the date, Herbert, because while it appears less than an hour passed here, I was aware of their work for days, weeks. At one point, I believed it had been the better part of a year. Whatever that realm is, time flows differently there, and they are relentless in their pursuits. He took hold of my hand, launching it quickly, out from under the sheets, grabbing it with an icy grip. Do not use that machine, Herbert. Under no circumstances should you seek the knowledge that I have had. Only I should know more. There are consequences for what I've done, surely. I'll report to you more once I have. No, Lawrence. You've suffered enough as it is. I cannot bear to see you in this state once again. Stay away from that machine, at least until you're much recovered. He took me and nodded. The key to my study is in my bedside table. Please take it with you once you've locked the door. And thank you for your concern, but I do tell you, I'm afraid this may have just begun. I did as he asked and assured that he would suffer no more that evening. I returned home to my wife. Life became uneventful for another week. Lawrence responded twice to me in letters, both to reassure me that he was well and remaining away from the machine. Then nothing once more. I grew concerned and believed that I should once more go to visit until I received a note exactly seven days after I had last visited him. Herbert, my dear friend, it is with good news that I inform you that you should come by immediately. My recovery is being speedy, and I wish for us to have dinner once more. I believe it is in our interest to destroy the machine, and I'll require you to bring the key so we can do the work together. Please hurry, for I wish for it to trouble me no more. 
Lawrence. Encouraged by this new letter, I went to his home straight away and knocked upon the door. From within, I heard him call. Herbert, is that you? Yes, my friend. I just received your letter. Excellent. Please, come in and make yourself welcome. I have a few things to attend to in my bedroom. If you would please go to the sitting room, I shall meet you there shortly. I heard his footsteps retreat and let myself into the house. I went to the sitting room and settled in. The fall was coming on quickly, and the room had developed a bit of a chill. I would have thought Lawrence would have started a fire himself, but considering his spirits, perhaps he simply hadn't noticed. I bent down to begin work at the fireplace and had started a fine fire with it when I found the paper. It had been crumpled and browned at the edges, but it had been flung into the fireplace with such force that it had survived the last fire that had been placed there. I used the poker to retrieve it, as throwing what was clearly manuscript paper in the fire was not something Lawrence did out of habit. I uncurled the paper. It was in Lawrence's unmistakable script. Herbert, I had written a letter earlier, but it appears to have never reached you. In it, I said goodbye. Believe me, I had to try. I've not been well the last few days. The world is a different place to me. Everything is reminding me that I am not who I used to be. Presence has entered my life. I believe I was alone when I returned to our world, but I came back. I came back haunted. Sometimes I find myself, unaware of how I got there, standing in front of my study door. More and more it feels as if something inside me wants me to disappear, to use me for nefarious purposes. One of these days, I don't think I'll be coming back. Herbert, when you get this letter, please know this may be the last time I speak to you as a friend. And as a friend, please ignore any requests to come and visit me. Knowing what I know, I would not do such a thing to you. Please, for the love of God, or whoever runs this universe, that whatever would invite you back to this house is no longer me. Here the letter trailed off into unintelligible scrawling and strange symbols. There was also something brown, something not the work of a fire, dotting its surface. Madness, I thought. Just to send it into madness. He's experiencing a mania of some sort and needs medication to handle it. He was still in his bedroom, as far as I knew. I ran for it, hoping he was still in a mood amenable to seeking a doctor's touch. I opened the bedroom door, and to this day, I wish I had not. I had been in such a state that I had not considered that Rafferty had not come to greet me upon my entrance. I now know why, as his poor body had been rendered into such a state that to describe what had been done with it would be unsympathetic to whoever hears these words. Know simply that what remains of the corpse had been placed in an ungodly ritual manner around the room, with candles placed in on some of the parts to make some sort of star symbol, connected by chalk. I can only hope now that the soul of that poor creature has gone to where all good dogs go. As for the other inhabitant, I can only agree with the letter that whatever ha- wore the body of Lawrence Archer, it was no longer my friend. It turned to face me as I approached the door, the eyes had been ripped from their sockets, but instead of empty holes, there were dark orbs, with a white dot that flickered and flamed in their middle. His mouth had been torn to reveal his red, raw jaws and teeth, although some had become longer, sharper, much like the claws that now capped his fingers. His clothes ill-fit, like the creature was fighting to burst through them. It pointed to its handiwork, and if its red mouth still contained lips, it would have smiled, I'm sure. Herbert, I've got something for you to see. 
to hear Lawrence's perfectly normal voice emerge from that creature saying my name was almost worse than the carnage before me. I shut the door as the monstrosity threw itself against the wood, pounding and trying to turn the doorknob. I knew my efforts to contain the beast would be fruitless before too long, as the door opened inwards, and I had no key to lock it from this side. A key! I reached into my pocket and felt the key there. What did it want with that machine, which lay locked within the study? I began to feel that whatever malevolent purpose this thing had, it would never have the chance to use it. The banging on the door became more frantic, and the thing called out to me, pleading, still speaking in Lawrence's voice, Please, Herbert, I'm well now. We must go to my study together. I reached next to me for an end table, which was of fairly sturdy construction, and wedged it under the door handle. The knob was now having difficulty turning, but I knew I would not have much time before it escaped, and would have me with it. I smelled a faint wisp of smoke. In its haste, a creature must have knocked over a candle in the room. With that, I had the inspiration for what I must do. Returning down to the sitting room, I lit the letter in the fireplace, wrapped it around the poker, and began lighting the curtains in the room. The fabric went quickly. I went to several other rooms, lighting what I could before the paper gave out so that the house would have no chance but to remain alight. I escaped out the front door just as I heard the sound of splintering wood from within. I ran down the front steps and called for the fire brigade, knowing all too well that the house would be unsalvageable by the time they arrived. One passerby heard my calls and went to find them. I looked back up at the edifice, crushed with the memories with my friend that I had within those walls, to be only memories forevermore. At a window, I saw a shape pounding on the glass before the flames engulfed the room, and it was gone. The police asked questions, but I answered them all very convincingly, mainly because the truth can be very subjective. It was my good, true friend, and the fire started purely by accident. I tried to rescue him, which was true, before I knew the truth, but by the time I was able to do so, it was too late. There was no reason to question my reputation, as I was a respected doctor. No other questions were raised, and to this day, I carry that knowledge with me. But understand me, that the most important thing has happened. The chair and the ability to see into worlds beyond our own, was destroyed that day, and the creature that had taken my dear Lawrence with it. At least that is my hope. I still do wonder about what journey he'd been on. There's a morbid curiosity to see it myself, but thankfully, with the company of my wife, those remain simple flights of fancy. Still... It is with trepidation that I wonder if, when I someday leave this earth, it will be with joy or via a dark throat beckoning me forward. I hope you enjoyed The Final Testament of Lawrence Archer by author Seth Paul. If you're a fan of Trent Reznor and his band Nine Inch Nails, that last story may have sounded familiar, and for good reason. It was based on the lyrics from his song, Come Back Haunted. If you enjoyed what you've heard and would like to hear more stories based on songs, please leave us a comment or drop us a line via simplyscarypodcast.com to let us know. Thank you for listening. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. 
It makes a huge difference, and it would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium, extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase a season's pass for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. 
It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.